The scripture reading for day, today's message comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved. Yet out of regard for his oath and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to, to God. God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you clear our hearts and minds to receive your word. And we know to do that, Lord, that we have to get out of your way. We must decrease so that you can increase. That starts with me. We thank you for this day and for the opportunity that we have to be a part of it. Bless this time, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. We are so engrossed in television today. 
we're all about being entertained and why not? I mean, with HD definition televisions and and um, um, Netflix and being able to to be entertained, that's just who we are. That that's that's a nation that we are. Want to be entertained? It seems the more extreme shows can be, the higher the ratings. Amazes me. The more dysfunctional people and families can be, the better. A few years ago. Uh, this hasn't been true across the church this morning entirely, but a few years ago, they even brought back Dallas. Y'all remember Dallas? And, and they brought back uh, that. I had a friend when we was farming. It made absolutely no difference back in the 70s. It made absolutely no difference what he was doing, where he was, or anything. At 7 o'clock on Fridays, Doug was going to be in front of his TV watching J.R. Ewing. That, that's just the way that it was. He's going to watch J.R. Well, the backbiting, these embittered families, uh, while they return in new generations and, and uh, of whom we admirably carry the family tradition uh, unabated with, with greed. That's not even to mention a scientific study that I ran across this week that put a question mark over, over the value of nightly meals together as a family. You know how we talk about sitting down with your kids and your family and, 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 and having a meal. I mean, we've talked about that, you know, family that prays together, stays together, and that, and that sort of thing. Well, this study, this scientific study that I found, it said that eating together on a regular basis could be bad, especially for teenagers, if the family's dysfunctional. The family routine of eating together is very good for you if your family dynamics are good, but it's bad if you're dysfunctional. Who doesn't know that? All of our airway examples of families operating at this dysfunction junction, they cannot hold a candle to the, to the massive relational meltdown taken as normal within the first century ruling family of the Herodians. The family tree that sprung from Herod the Great, and Herod did a lot of good things now. Don't, don't sit there and, uh, you know, he rebuilt the temple. He, he did a, a lot of, of good things, but he was nuts. He was crazy. He would have you killed. It didn't matter. Son, daughter, nephew, niece. He, he would have you killed if he thought you was a threat in any way to him. He just had you killed. That's the way to solve your problem. You know, just kill him. Today, from the Corleone family, remember, remember the, the, the godfather, the Corleones, you know, and, and, and uh, Vito told Michael to keep your, your, your friends close and your enemies closer. Or from that to the Sopranos. Any, any of y'all watch the Sopranos? Anybody? Oh, come on. I can't be the only one that watched that. Okay, Jeff did. Go ahead, pass up, Jeff. We still can't keep up with the Herodians, even with, 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 with those, that bunch. Being brutal and bloodthirsty appears to, to be a, a trait that surfaced early in Herod's offspring. In today's gospel text, 
one named Salome, a, a teenage daughter of Herodias, created and expanded her demand, her demand for the head of John the Baptizer by insisting that, that she brought John's head on a platter to her. Over 2,000 years later, this twisted teenager, Salome, worked with her mother, and her mother had a well-thought-out scheme that survives as the ultimate culture expression of betrayal, of betrayal and rejection. Those two things, betrayal and rejection. Now, as a Christ follower, now I'm not talking about somebody that doesn't follow Christ. I'm not talking about folks that aren't Christians. I'm saying as a Christ follower, I'm telling you that we all know and that we will experience at one time or another our head being served on a platter. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And as it was for John the Baptist, this service might come at the hands of a supposed friend or a fan. There's a surprising detail in the story that, that uh, Cindy read to us this morning, our, our text this morning, that sometimes the church overlooks. Mark tells us that Herod Antipas was a conflicted, partially convinced fan, F-A-N, understand what I'm saying, sometimes I get fan of John the Baptist. But the greatest part of Herod was his self-absorption, his he was self-obsessed with, with himself and self-centered. That's how that Herod became known. Yet John the Baptist and his courageous message of repentance and forgiveness, it fascinated Herod Antipas. It fascinated him. You have to un understand something about the Herods. They were Jews. They were Jews. He was a Jew. The Herodian dynasty ruled according to the whims of Rome, and they flagrantly disregarded the Torah, first five books, Torah, mandate if it interfered with their political ambition. Sound familiar to anybody today? That's what I thought. Still, Herod Antipas could hear the ring of truth and the clarity of John's call to repentance when John would speak. John the, words, John, John the Baptist's words flew in the face of Herod and of his absolute royal authority, but they also struck fast to his heart. Herod arrested and imprisoned John, but then he himself really became a captive audience. He listened to him many times listening to and learning from John's message. In the, in the very end, though, the Herodian side of Antipas won out. Unwilling to lose face. Unwilling to lose face in front of a, back, uh, a banquet room full of upper crust cronies, Herod orders John the Baptist execution and indulges Herodias, his daughter, her wish that his severed head be displayed 
on a platter and brought to them. Herod, Herod Antipas, he really hated doing this. But friends, he didn't hate it near as much as endangering his own position and power and prestige by not honoring his foolish oath to a teenage, to a teenage dancer. That's what he didn't want to do. Mark's text, it, it doesn't discuss the relationship, really, between Herod Antipas and John the Baptist. John was a prisoner, we know that. But apparently Herod had been his audience quite a bit. For, as I said a while ago, Herod Antipas liked to listen to him. Yet it was Herod's own edict that silenced John's voice forever. You want somebody to shut up, cut your head off. That's her, how Herodias saw it. Cut his head off. Despite John's precarious position, despite his obvious knowledge of, of Herod's violent family history and personal guilt, John the Baptist never wavered in his message. That's how John became known. He never wavered in his message. He could have. I mean, we, we know that there's free will. He, he could have. He could have said, well, maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, it's bad. He says it's not only that, it's wrong. You're sinning against God, is what John the Baptist told him. He was breaking, Herod Antipas, was breaking God's law. And God dem demanded repentance and reform, even of Herod. Tough talk. That's really tough talk, especially if you're on the wrong side of the jail bars. You know, if you're on the wrong side of the cell, that, that's running that mouth. That's pretty dangerous. John was brazenly calling Herod on the carpet, specifically spelling out his sin. And, and the scripture says it left him mesmerized and murderous. Living behind bars, John had to know that his words were a recipe for disaster. Although I am thoroughly convinced the more I read and the more I study this passage of text that John never considered literally, literally losing his head. John the Baptist, he never stopped preaching. He never stopped preaching his message because he fully embodied his calling. You know, that calling that God has on each and every one of our lives. That calling that takes us beyond anything that we think that we could ever do. That call that the Lord has on your life, that gnawing to go beyond yourself, to step out in faith, to be that lone voice sometimes, and sometimes it is a lone voice, and do what God has called you to do. Preaching that message. Well, friends, John knew that his life would be put in danger, and yet he never shut up. The world is still a, a place of personal politics and one-upping one another. 
one-upsmanship is what I put, and Carolyn said that was a word, so one-upsmanship. Whether you're clinging to a construction ladder or a corporate ladder, ladder, the climb is treacherous and the fall can be fatal. Ever since the first fall, the faithfulness of our footing has been exceptionally fragile. Here's the reality that all of us live with. Are you ready to hear it? You sure? Brace yourself. At some time in our lives, we should not be surprised to find our heads served on a platter. You heard me right. If it hasn't been, it will be. Your head served on a platter, betrayed, rejected, punished for behaving in a way that threatens those who have and want to hold on to personal power. Try that sometime. Maybe you had your head handed to you as a child when you tried to protect a sibling from harm. Maybe you had your head handed to you as a teenager when you dared to defy an adult who bullied or abused you. Maybe you had your head handed to you as an adult because you, were the, you had the least influence or you were the lowest in the pecking order. Maybe your head hit the platter as a sacrifice for some supposed greater good. But even as we all get to feel the back of the steel on our neck, to experience the bitterness of a trail at the hands of those who claim to know and admire us most. It is also true that we all wield our own blade against those that we call friends and family. We will all face betrayal, and I'm convinced of that, at some point in our lives. Tell me your 12 closest friends, and I'll guarantee you that one of them will betray you. How do I know that? You think you're better than Christ? I mean, it stands to reason, doesn't it? That's what I thought. But the even harsher truth is this. We will act as betrayers at some point in our lives. For you see, we have both John the Baptist and Judas Iscariot running through our veins. Think you're not a member of the platter party? The truth is there are hundreds of ways to chip away at the necks of those that we live and work with. When you hear a friend being attacked, their work, their reputation, their person, and you don't come to their defense, that's a hack to the neck. When you fail to give credit to the one you know that deserves it, that's a hack to the neck. When you take credit for something that rightfully belongs to someone else, that's a hack to the neck. When you block out the advice of others because it, 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 it threatens your personal advancement, that's a hack to the neck. When fiscal concerns overwhelm faithful connections, when you choose promotion over relationships, that's a hack to the neck. When doing what is safe and sanctioned replaces doing what is right and just, that's a hack to the neck. 
when forging forward required running roughshod over the small and the weak. That's a hack to the neck. Sadly, putting heads on the chopping block is part of, we say in disciple Bible study, our human condition. Whether we're vegetarians or carnivores or vegans or gluten-free omnivores, locobores, we're all serving up heads on platters almost at every meal that we take. You see, it takes a change in our spirit, not in our diet, in our spirit, in our soul. At our meal tables, we're increasingly more concerned with what we're putting into our mouths than what's coming out of them. But as aerospace engineer Mark Lake observed, our fixation is one-sided. Maybe what goes in should be less processed, he says, and what comes out should be more processed. That way we would betray less and bless more. Before we finish with these scriptures today, there's one more aspect I'd like for us to consider. What do you think Jesus thought when he heard that they had beheaded John the Baptist? As you read and studied these scriptures this week, I, I'm sure that that thought probably crossed your mind. Well, you see, this story is a mirror account of what was about to happen to Jesus. How did Jesus deal with this sneak peek into his future? Well, we know how he felt about Herod. He called him, a, he said, that fox. Well, Jesus called Herod that name in Luke 12, 32. He wasn't calling Herod beautiful. He, he wasn't calling him cunning. In the Hebrew culture, a vulpine was an unclean animal because it was seen as shifty, self-serving, and unscrupulous. For Jesus, Herod was all that and much more. And yet Jesus did not let other people's treatment of him dictate his treatment to them. Y'all with me? He showed compassion even to his enemies, even to those who would betray him. In the 1970s, anthropologist Margaret Mead was on the board of trustees of Colgate Rochester, Bexley Hall Kosher Divinity School, and that's a mouthful. One day a seminary student asked her what was the earliest sign of civilization in a given culture. She expected the answer to be a clay pot or perhaps a fish hook or a grinding stone or something. Mead's answer stunned the seminary student. She said, a healed femur. Mead explained that no mended bones are found where the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest, reigns supreme. What happens in a culture like that? It's just the strong that survive, isn't it? A heel femur shows that, that someone cared. Someone had to do that person's hunting and gathering until that leg healed. 
First United Methodist Church, Heber Springs, how will we become known? How will we become known? It's a place that will do your hunting and gathering for your healing. This church is full of broken hearts, full of broken hearts this morning. Mine is, yours is. We know that. Are we compassionate and loving and caring enough to say, Jesus, you lead us. Take my thoughts and my ways and let's put all that stuff aside. What do you want, Lord? How do you want to lead this church? How will we become known? I know how we are known by a lot of people in Heber. I've been here going on 10 years. The evidence of compassion is the first sign, Barbara. Isn't that something? She said, of civilization. It's amazing. And Jesus' whole ministry and his treatment of everyone he met was marked by compassion even to those who would betray him. Compassion. The Gospels inform us over and again that Jesus Christ was a human being filled with compassion. What is more, he was compassionate even toward those folks that we don't like. Even though Jesus saw his future of betrayal and, and death played out in front of his eyes in John the Baptist, head on a platter, Jesus kept on keeping on. It didn't deter him from, from his mission. It didn't keep him, keep him from loving those who would betray him. It didn't diminish his compassion one iota. And as the church that Jesus gave his life for, First United Methodist Church, listen to me, and neither should it us. Other people are going to hack away at you. I say it as Christ followers. Every day and every way. But let's do this. Let's do this. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad to be in the house of the Lord today with God's people. Thanks be to God. Amen.